Welcome to Europarama, the border-breaking podcast about science fiction and the future of Europe, brought to you by Are We Europe and co-hosted by the Science Fiction Economics Lab. I'm Giuseppe Porcaro. I'm Alberto Cottica. And today we are going to travel not in the future, but in a parallel dimension, another now that could exist somewhere in a fissure of the time-space continuum. But before fastening the belts and starting this journey together, we need a pilot to guide us through this other now. And we have a very special one. Yanis Varoufakis is joining Europa Rama from Athens. Hi, Yanis. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be talking in science fiction terms about our reality. Thanks. It's uh, our pleasure to have you. Yanis needs very little presentations, but nevertheless, I want to recall that uh, he is an economist and a politician, former minister of finance of Greece, member of the Greek parliament, co-founder of the European Transnational Party, DM25, among many, many other things. And last but not least, he is a science fiction writer with his last book, Another Now, published by Penguin, which is an exploration about how a possible alternative to capitalism could realistically look like. Yanis, as you are our pilot, can you guide us through the other now? What's the story about? The story is my way of answering a question that I've been avoiding all my life. I come from a left-wing tradition. I remain loyal to it, whatever it means. (laughs) But as a critic of capitalism, the obvious question that one must ask me is, okay, mate, if you don't like capitalism, what is the alternative? And it's a question that I've been avoiding, like the plague, for decades, until at some point I decided to take the plunge and answer the question by means of a blueprint, a kind of comprehensive blueprint for how society, a technologically advanced, liberal society that uses markets, could function without capitalism, which of course means without two particular markets. All the other markets remain, except for the labor market and the market for capital, for money. Could such a socioeconomic arrangement exist? Now, of course, putting this together is uh, mind-bogglingly hard, and it's made much harder because um, I happen to disagree with myself. Every time I come up with an idea about how corporations should work without uh, capitalism, how money should work, how the real estate market should work, or housing, I end up disagreeing with myself. Then I thought, the only way I can write this this is as a novel, because this is the beauty of novels. You can populate it with people, with characters, and give each one of them one or more of your own uh, views and let them clash and have it out against one another and see what happens. The science fiction comes from the fact that I did not want to describe a futuristic society, a kind of post-capitalist society that happens in 2050 or 3000 AD. I wanted to explain how our lives could have been changed, let's say, after the 2008 financial catastrophe, in a way which is consistent with my blueprint. And in order to facilitate a story of how things could have been different from 2008 to now, I came up with a wormhole with the whole paraphernalia of science fiction. Staying a little bit more on this science fiction, because here at Europarama, we really look into it as a tool. There are many fascinating concepts that you come up from the book. For example, you mentioned in some part of the novel that capitalism, like science fiction, trades in future assets 
using a fiction, which in that case is referred to a currency. You mentioned already one of the prompts why you wanted to, to use science fiction as a blueprint in order to write this blueprint. What else, what more did you take from the science fiction tradition and in general, how have you been regarding science fiction even before writing this novel in terms of some sort of inspiration or tool or sets of uh, corpus literature that deals with uh, utopia, this deals with parallel words and word building in the first place? From where I'm standing, science fiction is not about other worlds. It's not about the future. It's a fantastic mechanism, trick for um, understanding the present. As Frederick Jameson, one of my favorite writers, once said, it's the archaeology of the future. I, I'm a Trekkie, so look at the Star Trek. Star Trek is a remarkable setting within which to examine all the great philosophical questions of our time and of the past. But even if you go all the way back, go to Plato's Republic, you'll find that he uses science fiction in order to investigate our great concerns about ourselves. So he has the ring of Gigis, for instance, the ring that a shepherd finds in the forest, which he wears, he puts on his finger, and then suddenly he realizes that by just turning it, he can make himself invisible. And Socrates and Plato use this allegory, this science fiction apparatus, in order to ask the question about the limits of one's power and how happy does power make you? What is your moral responsibility when you become powerful? So all these tricks are about the present, and it is about us coming to terms with the fact that everything around us could have been different if we had made different collective and individual choices. In the end of the day, it boils down to human agency and the fact that we can choose the kind of political and economic system we want to live in. Going a bit more into the details of your proposal, The big deal of your imagined economic system is this free markets without capitalism. The people that have read the book can understand exactly what it means, but for our listeners, they might be puzzled by these two things put together, one after the other. So perhaps uh, we can explain a little bit more how you imagine these free markets without capitalism. Going back to Adam Smith, it's quite clear that the greatest guru of free markets the man who is still associated in the mind of libertarians today as their patron saint. He was against share markets. He was against the idea of companies where you have a separation between ownership and management. He believed that companies should stay small, they should be family-based, and he was utterly against the idea of liquid shares, shares that are tradable. His fear, and I think it's a fear that has been vindicated by history, is that if you create share markets like that, then very, very soon, especially if you combine share markets with money markets, with financial markets, you're going to have a tremendous concentration of market power in the hands of very, very few corporations, shareholding companies, BlackRock, um, State Street, Vanguard, and so on. And that will go against the very principles of competition. That's from Adam Smith's perspective. So uh, one market, which in my mind, my leftist mind, is inconsistent with competition, with competitive markets, is the market for shares. Another market, which is detrimental to the idea of freedom through buying and selling. The Adam Smith perspective, in other words, is undermined by the second market, which is the labor market. Marx's great contribution to our understanding of capitalism, and let's not forget that he was the first 
economist, Karl Marx, to, to have come up with a business cycle model, which is based on precisely that idea, which I'm about to articulate. The idea that labor is a very strange, very weird commodity. It is a commodity in, in the sense that it is bought and sold. It has a price, the wage. There's a market for it. Which if you're an employer, you are buying that commodity in, other, in, in the sense of the labor contract. You're contracting somebody to work X hours a week for a certain wage. There's a skill set that comes with that particular worker. But you don't care about that commodity. You buy this commodity for the activity and for the productivity and for the ingenuity and the innovation of the ideas that this person is going to bring to you, to your place of work. But that can neither be bought nor sold. So you are buying a commodity labor commodity, in order to get an activity, labor activity, which can never be commodified. And it is the chasm between these two natures of labor that um, is the source of profit on the one hand and the source of crisis on the other. So if you take this perspective, and you don't have to, but this is my perspective, combining Adam Smith on the one hand and Karl Marx on the other, then to have markets that work in a way consistent with Smith's celebration of the market you need uh, to move away from a situation where labor is split down the middle between its commodity and its activity nature. And the only way to do that is by not having a distinction between profits and wages, not having a distinction between owners who do not work and workers who do not own. And the only way to do that is to have one person, one share, one vote. And that immediately does away with uh, the share markets because uh, it, shares become like library cards in universities. Uh, you have one when you get in. You use it, it's very useful, you cannot lease it, you cannot lend it, you cannot sell it, and you give it back when you are out of there, either because you've been fired or because you have resigned. So imagine this transformation. Imagine if we had corporate law, which stipulated one worker, one share, one vote, which, by the way, does not mean equality in terms of wages, because we can all decide if we have run a corporation that one of us deserves to be paid three times as much because they are far more productive and useful to us. So we have equal decision-making power, but we can have diff very different wages, very different bonuses. The difference is, of course, that this is democratically decided amongst themselves. The moment you move in that direction, then you have no share market. And if you add to, this to the macro framework a central bank that does that which the Central Bank of China is about to do now, they're already doing it, and which the European Central Bank is very keen to emulate, that is to create a digital wallet for everyone, essentially give everybody an account with their central bank, then this combination of the demise of um, share markets and the availability to everyone of a free digital bank account with a central bank, suddenly you have markets without capitalism. This is really fascinating. I'm giving the mic to Alberto because he has another question for you. Yanis, the novel uses some version of a many-world hypothesis in which when every time uh, the famous uh, wave function of a quantum level event collapses, then the universe splits into two copies, which are identical except for the outcome of that one event. So this generates uncountably many universes. And yet, in the novel, our now and the other now are diverged at a precise moment in time, which is important in your personal biography as well as that of many of us, which is the financial crisis of 2008. You were one of the protagonists of that phase, and I wonder, do you really think that we could have become something different at that point in time? How do you see the story as it played out from your vantage point? 
Well, the quick answer is yes. From my perspective, the multiple universes story is a shorthand. It's a science fiction way of saying that we could have done things very differently, which for me is essential in being liberal, in believing in agency. I'm not a determinist. I think that determinism is the worst enemy of freedom. So yes, we could have done things differently. The question is, looking back to the last few decades, the decades during which I lived, which was the most pivotal moment? Which moment was pregnant with most possibilities? A lot of people are talking about the pandemic as being a pivotal moment, a moment that changed the world. I don't agree with that. I think that in my lifetime, I was born in 1961, in my lifetime, the moment of truth was 2008. Because 2008 was for capitalism, that which 1991 was for communism. 1991 saw the end of communism, and it dragged down with it the whole of the left, including social democracy, to a very large extent. And 2008, for me, has really transformed capitalism. I don't believe we live in capitalism anymore. I have this very weird, <laughs> odd view that um, um, this is closer to feudalism, to a digital form of feudalism, what we live in. By the way, this is, um, you know, spoiler alert, this is going to be my next book, which I started writing a few weeks ago, so you can imagine I'm really deeply into it. That's why 2008, for me, was important. And in writing another now... I wanted to ask myself, what could we have done differently? Because I was part of the Occupy Wall Street movement. I was part of the, the similar movement in London, of the Greek version in 2011, the which then led to us being elected to government in 2015. Um, and it was all from the perspective of radicals, leftists. It was a, com a complete failure. There's no doubt about that. But could we have succeeded? And what would success look like? And what should we have done to have succeeded? So I try to answer all that in that book. <laughs> nice. And we are looking forward to your next book, of course. And I was super curious about this feudalism thing. Going back to Another Now, the world of Another Now owes many of its characteristics to the existence of rebel groups, which you name by the techniques that they use for their political struggle, crowd shorters and soul sources and blade runners and so on and so forth. And I find this fascinating, and I can see the game theorists behind it, because they look like a sort of judo in which uh, the financialization of capitalism is used against itself. Could you say more about these techniques? Uh, what kind of militant do you think would be suited to carry out these struggling techniques? What kind of organizations do you see? That was the hardest part of the book to write. It's easier to write a blueprint of how the world could work. It's much harder to explain how you go from where we are to that alternative organization. It's really very hard, as you can imagine. The question that occupied me was, what was the alternative to us gathering in the various squares, uh, the indignados in Spain, us in Athens, uh, the good people of Occupy Wall Street in New York? Because that, that, of course, was always going to fizzle out. What kind of rebellion? Standard trade unionism was not going to work on its own. Trade unions should play a significant role. But when I think back to the 19th century, when trade unions were first formed, I mean, these people were real heroes, because think about it. I mean, you know, these were poor people. By striking as miners, as workers in textile factories and so on, effectively, they condemned their own families to hunger. Often they were beaten up. Some of them were killed, fired. The personal cost to organizing against capitalism was gigantic. And the personal benefit, tiny, if ever it was positive. 
to me, it's clear that if capitalism or what I call techno-feudalism today is going to be transformed through a democratic uprising, a peaceful but democratic uprising, this balance, this cost-benefit balance has to be altered. We have to go from a situation where you have maximal sacrifice at a personal level with minimum personal gain to one where you have minimal sacrifice and maximum collective and personal gain. Let me give you a tangible example that has come out of another now and has manifested itself in things that we have done. When I say we, I'll give the example of the Progressive International which we set up a few years back with Bernie Sanders, but now it has taken over around the world. We have organizations with more than 200 million members belonging to Progressive International. Over the last two years, we, we targeted Amazon, a campaign, Make Amazon Pay. And we had rolling strikes from, you know, starting in Bangladesh and in Thailand, moving to, to India, then going to Germany, then going to New Jersey, then going to all the way to Seattle. So this is the kind of international action which um, I think is the key to making a difference. But we need to go beyond that. And in the book, I try to explain how that happens. You need to attack simultaneously the financial values of the companies that um, you're targeting through their own tools of financial engineering because they are very efficient. If you have good, rebellious financial engineers and they know which part of a CDO is going to destabilize the value of the CDO and you know that this particular CDO is instrumental in the st financial stability of a particular organization, let's say a company that has, is trying to privatize the National Health Service in Britain or has already privatized um, the water authority with detrimental effects on the environment and on the uh, citizens of a particular country. You attack their shares, their CDOs, through targeted payment strikes. You organize the consumers, not just the producers, not just the, the workers. And I call that in the book techno-rebels, and I've tried to come up with um, fictional but not unrealistic groupings of people that combine the standard organizing techniques of movements, time-honored techniques, with the financial engineering that is very precise and clean, clinical and laser-like in uh, destabilizing the financial stability of corporations that need to be destabilized if we're going to change the corporate system. I would like to introduce also two other guests that we have today. They read the book and they're eager to ask a question. Uh, I would like to welcome Teresa O'Connell, who is uh, editor at Are We Europe. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Samuel Dovery Vesterby, uh, who is the director of the European Neighborhood Council. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Teresa, the mic is yours. Yanis, uh, there's so many questions that came up when reading the book, but um, I only have space for one. So one thing that sort of stuck with me was mention of how social media is proletarianizing us by having us unwittingly provide the labor that feeds into the machine and also the product that it sells. So something that you mentioned, actually, even in this conversation, turning us into the peasants of the digital feudalist system. And at the same time, the ability to control what we think through the manipulation of information is one of the keys to the success of the techno structure itself. So my question is, 
What do you see as the role of the media once the technostructure has been surpassed and market socialism has eliminated the need to claim power and profit through information? Wow, that's a fantastic question. The hope that I have is that uh, by moving away from a situation where you have a new commodity, we now have a new commodity, which is quite fascinating and devastatingly threatening. I call it a command commodity. Think about it. There are algorithms out there as we speak that are training us to train them to convince us to do things that give surplus value to the owners of the algorithms. You only have to state this to realize what kind of challenge the concept of liberalism <laughs> is under. And what is this algorithm predicated upon? It's predicated upon two things. First, that the platform belongs to shareholders. And the second thing it's predicated upon is that we get services from the internet for free, which is, of course, not for free. The price we pay is the price of our soul, right? We are the products, as we know. So to answer your question as briefly and succinctly as I can, two things need to be changed. One is no longer ownership of algorithms and platforms by highly concentrated bundles of shares. And the second thing is we should pay for our services. And that's why in another now, I've even come up with a kind of catchword for the system that I am proposing in that alternative reality, a penny for your thought. So the idea is that um, there are micropayments. Whenever we use the internet, we should be paying for the developers that are developing apps that we use. Micropayments, small payments that accumulate for them so that we don't have to have an advertising-based model. So we do away with shareholding and we do away with free services. That is a succinct answer to your question. And then, of course, it would be great to have three hours to talk about it longer. Thank you. And I would like to give the mic to Samuel because he also has a question for you. Same as with Teresa, I had so many questions while reading your book hyper fast over a week. <laughs> My main question, because of the line of work that I do, which is linked to international relation and also to certification and democracy, is really how do you overcome the problem of biases? In the book, you mention the jury, but mm -hmm. I couldn't help but, of course, logically think that if you have a jury of customers, you will attract the most proactive customers unless you somehow try to weigh the bias one way or the other. So I was just curious whether you'd, you'd given this any thought. If I understand your question correctly, Sortition is the answer. If the jury is selected randomly, then it's representative, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But you mentioned in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the juries would be customers who proactively want to participate. No, they, they will be customers. They will be citizens. They will be members of the public. But they will be selected randomly. Now, a random sortition, as you probably know better than me, uh, can be guided in a particular way. So, for instance, when the Irish Assembly was formed for the purposes of articulating the referendum question that was put to the people in Ireland regarding abortion, the algorithm was tailor-made to ensure that there is geographic representation, that there is gender representation, that several parameters are um, met regarding representativeness. So that's what I had in mind. Not that you have volunteers. No, God forbid. The last thing we want is juries made of zealots. 
We would like to continue discussing for hours, but uh, we don't have so much time. However, before leaving, I would like to quote Siri, not Siri, the phone assistant from a famous company, but Siri, the other now alter ego of Iris, who is one of the protagonists of, of your book, Yanis. She says at some point that uh, our dream was to change society radically, not just be accepted by it. I have to say that I've been arguing a lot about this quote with a friend, Joanna Nieman. She lives in Indonesia and has read your book with interest. She's actually the reason why I started to read your book in the first place, because she said you must read it. She asked me to ask you about Iris Siri. Is her character meant as a mockery of leftist actors of today? Or if it is not, does it just tell how depressing the story is that nothing can change to the better? Oh, it's certainly not the latter. I'm not at all depressed, even though, you know, I look back to my life and I see nothing more than a sequence of defeats. Nevertheless, uh, they were all very productive defeats and uh, insightful defeats, and I do not regret them at all. And uh, personally, I will continue with uh, enthusiasm and a spring in my step. So, no, there's not, nothing depressive about it. On the other hand, she's not mocking Iris or Cyrus. They, they are not mocking the left. What Iris does and what I try to do, that's a very strong part of my psyche, if you want. I think that we leftists must constantly beware our own authoritarian tendencies. Every time the left has become powerful in a union, in a local government authority, in a government, in a household, referring to patriarchy, to the man of the house who is a strong communist or leftist, you know, and becomes a patriarchal despot within his home, we fall prey to power. The Gulag was created by communists for communists <laughs> before they welcomed anybody else, welcomed in the commons, right? So I think that the left must continue to be optimistic, hopeful. We must continue to work towards a better world while at the very same time being aware of our own tendency to make a mockery of our own projects and values. That says it all. And in my novel, there is an aesthetic representation of that. It begins with Iris's funeral, and she's buried in a black and red coffin, red to symbolize the fire in her heart, the revolutionary fervor, and black so that we are all reminded of the darkness within us all. Well, there is also an emotional aspect, not just a symbolic aspect, I suppose. Thank you for your time. We are really now closing this episode. Our listeners will find in the show notes more information about your book, as well as the link to subscribe to Are We Europe, the border-breaking European media that proudly publishes Europarama. And also thanks to Alberto, Teresa and Samuel for joining this episode. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you.